welcome to a very special edition of The Cycle, talking midterms. I've got the two best guests in the nation to have this conversation with me on the pod today. That's Simon Rosenberg, who you guys might re- remember from such episodes as, you know, really hammering uh, through Twitter about the hard data and about what he was seeing and hearing on the ground in terms of what we could expect for the red wave. Tom Bonnier of Target Smart. He's the CEO of Target Smart. And I know you guys who know what Target Smart is because he's the one that's been doing all of the early vote model turnout through the cycle and telling us what's what on the ground. So I'm excited to have these two veteran DC strategists, um, political consultants, smart, start, smart politicos on here to talk about what happened and how the red wave was crushed. So welcome, boys. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. So I want to start off just with a, with with kind of opening the gambit, right? We're talking about a midterm cycle. I started feeling sick about the 2022 midterm on election night of 2020 <laughs> because midterm fundamentals are tough. And I'm a trained political scientist and expertise with uh, political behavior. The midterm effect is one of the strongest fundamentals that you will ever find in American politics, okay? And so, you know, understanding that and, and the system that we had to, to go into this midterm on, it was kind of what motivated me to tank my academic research, you know, analyst stuff and, and move into direct electioneering work um, in the into the hack jobs with you guys. So I am, um, you know, really interested in hearing what your takeaway, and we'll start with Simon, go to Tom, is about what happened and why their red wave didn't come. Yeah, I mean, the most important thing is that the Republicans made a huge strategic error at the very beginning of the election cycle by running towards a politics, MAGA, which had just been rejected overwhelmingly by the country twice. I mean, usually when a politics fails, a party runs in some other direction. (coughs) And in this cycle, they didn't. They embraced MAGA. In fact, the whole party became much more MAGA than it used to be. And it was always a risk. I mean, I wrote a column on this at the, in November of 2021 saying that, you know, at that point we had seen Biden's approval rating come down. The congressional generic, uh, which is that basic question of you're going to vote Republican or Democrat, didn't move. And what I speculated then was that what we're seeing is this we now may be seeing an atypical midterm, that there were forces at play here that could overwhelm the fundamentals, as you described them, uh, which is the, the fear of MAGA, which was the issue that, you know, the thing that drove the last two elections could very well drive this one. And then I speculated two other things. One is that we would have enough to run on. Um, and had done a good enough job that people would have felt good about our time in office, which I think happened. And also that our new robust and muscular field operations were going to make midterm drop off less, much less likely, which also happened. And so, you know, there was, you could see some of this a year ago. It wasn't necessarily what was going to happen, but it was something that could happen. And so I think Tom and I were much more open than many to believing that the election could be uh, an atypical midterm and much better for Democrats than people expected. Great, Tom. Yeah, I I can't agree more. I mean, the Republican extremism was apparent, you know, from the beginning. The underperformance was apparent from the beginning. I think the big question was, to what degree will it resonate? Because we obviously saw Virginia and New Jersey, where we tried to make the case that Glenn Glenn Youngkin was a Trump mode uh, extremist. And, you know, it didn't really resonate. But obviously the landscape a year ago was very different than it was as we got into this year. 
And then, you know, certainly the Dobbs decision, I think, crystallized that. To the extent that there was anyone out there that thought that Democrats were crying wolf, that maybe Republicans weren't really beholden to Trump, that they weren't the party of extremists, I think that crystallized that for enough voters, where that underperformance that Simon had been tracking from early in the year, because I think people look at this and I think Dobbs, you know, Dobbs did change everything in a way, but so much of it was in place prior to Dobbs. So much of that underperformance was clear uh, before Dobbs that to me that just pushed it over the top. And it really then allowed some of these other arguments that maybe weren't resonating as much in terms of like the democracy arguments, the January 6th hearings penetrating, people taking a second look at these candidates who were trying to play moderate. You know, you think about Dr. Oz, you look at that debate where he just kept trying to frame himself as the moderate and uh, Fetterman as the extremist. It just people weren't going to buy it at that point uh, because of what they were seeing. And I think, again, Dobbs crystallized that. Yeah, I mean, starting off in May, you know, I, I, I got to tell you guys, I mean, New Jersey and, and uh, Virginia, right? Go back in time, rerun those post-Dobbs, totally different outcome. Probably Terry McAuliffe is sitting in the governorship, even if he runs right. what I have been highly critical of, of the version of threat messaging or negative partisanship messaging that ran in that cycle. Um, yep. But even with that, I think would have would have been fine. The difference is these fundamentals, and, and it's really hard to get people to accept, hey, you know, if if we don't have some kind of threat mechanism for our electorate to to jazz negative partisanship, which is what drives that midterm differential for um, in party out party, then we're going to be in real trouble. And and you know I, I was arguing let's make that threat to democracy, threat to freedoms broadly sp- um, defined, and then personalized, right? Because you know my criticism, of course, in that Virginia stuff was look, you got it. Can't just tell people someone's like Donald Trump. You got to tell them why that matters to them personally and, and couch that in loss aversion language, right? So, um, you know, when we think about what was coming into, do- coming in, in, into the cycle, it was going to be an incredible lift to, to be able to blunt this midterm effect. And, you know, as, as, as I think Simon started off talking about, when you have a political party that instead of doing the normal post-election right. autopsy, and saying, okay, this is what went wrong, right? Democrats have done this, you know, you know, don't 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 tell people you want to defund the police, other things, right? You accept that this this um change, a strategic shift has to occur. And that never happened within the Republican Party. And it was a massive strategic weakness for them that became so much easier for us. Everyone, I mean, speaking broadly, everyone working in messaging and campaigns to to define a tangible threat that ties to freedom and threat to democracy for regular people. Tom, I know you put out something in September talking about how you had never seen the activity in the registration data that you were looking at back then for women. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then, um, Simon, I'd like to hear your thoughts, too, about what you were looking at in terms of data with women activities headed into the general. Yeah, you know, this is actually where Simon and I really connected and started working together in some ways was, um, you know, he had already been doing the great work that he had been doing for months earlier. For me, Kansas was a bit of a wake-up call uh, and just being astounded, not necessarily that the pro-choice vote won, the no vote won, but that it won by such a wide margin, really digging into that, looking under the hood, seeing what was driving it, seeing that it was young women just turning out in crazy numbers, numbers that you have never seen before, you will never see again, you know, asking ourselves the question, 
is this something that's limited to Kansas or is it happening elsewhere? That's where we started tracking voter registration data, seeing that there were gender gaps emerging really around the country um, was striking. And so it's it was just a matter of sort of collecting the clues. And if you start with the theory, which was the prevailing theory that a red wave was coming based on, you know, as the point you made, the fundamentals, right? And that the fundamentals were viewed as inevitable. We had to try to challenge that assumption versus the against the data points that were available to us. Voter registration was the one that I was focusing on most of the time. Simon was looking at some other elements that I'll let him talk about. Uh, but that was the first clear indicator that I was looking at that this was just a different electorate and that the operating assumption of an inevitable red wave should at least be questioned. Yeah, Rachel, the, the real, the quick story here is that, um, you know, the, the Dobbs leak happened on May 2nd. Uvalde happened at the end of May. And, you know, we went into the field with some polling in Arizona, Nevada, and Pennsylvania in mid-May, <clears throat> where we saw overperformance for Democrats and underperformance for Republicans. And I was like, wow, this is kind of weird. I mean, I have an explanation for it, but I didn't really think it was going to happen. And then I started looking around at other polling, and there was similar... You know, in, in national polling, if you go back and look at 538 in May and June, Democrats were doing much better. In the limited polling that we had, there was much less polling the cycle than usual because of all the late Republican primaries. And so there wasn't the normal amount of data. And so I think there was a lot less analysis going on than there would have been in, in a traditional midterm. But the data, the data that we had suggested that Democrats were overperforming, Republicans were underperforming. And then Dobbs happened. Um, and then we saw the five House specials where we overperformed 2020 by seven points, kind of a just a stunning number, right? I mean, that we were above 2020 at all, right? In anything, right? It was just not something that any of us could have imagined. It happened in, in Alaska, Minnesota, upstate New York, you know, it, and so it was happening across the country. And then, you know, we saw this outrageous fundraising advantages we had, another sign of intensity. And when we ended June 30th, our House candidates had a five to one cash in hand advantage over Republicans in the battleground races. That's we've never seen numbers like that before. Then Tom documented what happened in Kansas and what happened in the voter reg stuff. And so what Tom and I were saying as we got into the fall is that like all of these indications of intensity are in our, moving in our direction. Um, and would they carry over to the big election itself? And then the early vote came, and Tom built this remarkable public utility, this site called Target Early, which we all now can use to do all the nerds get to go play with it all the time. And what we saw in the early vote was exactly the same you know, dynamic, which is Democratic overperformance, Republican underperformance. I used to, I would go in every morning and look at it and be like, Tom, am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing here? Because I just don't believe that this is as good as it is. I mean, we just, we were way over 2020. The turnout was above 2018. And it was like, we were sitting here as data people like, this just can't be this good, you know, like, and it was that good every day in every state, right? It wasn't, there wasn't anomalous data. You're a nerd, right? There wasn't, conflicting data. There wasn't anomalous data. It was all pointing in the same direction. And then um, and then in the final week, when the red wave returned, the return of the red wave happened, um, you know, we uh, that things were actually getting better for us every day uh, in the early vote. And we really so we we really challenged the red wave. But then the, the, the thing that is the story that's so interesting was this fake polling, right? And, and the reason why the red wave returned, the, the evil red wave returned, was there was a single poll by the New York Times by Nate Cohn 
which showed us down four. And everyone started saying, okay, the fundamentals are finally kicking in now. And then the Republicans did this BS campaign to flood the zone in seven states, more than 40 polls, 10 different pollsters. They pushed the averages down. And I think at that point, it became impossible for many commentators to resist the red wave uh, as a narrative. And so, but the red wave was false. It actually never happened, right? It wasn't like it happened a little bit and then it receded. It never, it never happened. And, but it was manufactured by some set of right wing forces for whatever reasons. We can talk about that in another podcast. And so we had assurance and confidence that what we were seeing was consistent now for months and months and months. There was one election. All the things were showing pointing in the same direction, which is why we were so aggressive about challenging the conventional wisdom. And thank God we were right, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I was relying on both of you guys. I, I don't dig in data as much as I used to. I'm, I'm working on strategy and, and polit- what I call political engineering, <laughs> right? Um, but I, um, I, I knew that the hard. So I guess I should go back, right? When, when Dobbs get reversed, got reversed. Obviously, that was a bad day for American women, especially, and I am one of them. So it was certainly not a good thing to happen, but I understood ex- ex- exceptionally at that moment in time. Oh, there's two people in in all of America who understand how completely fucked Republicans are going to be over this, and that's Mitch McConnell and me, okay? <laughs> and I was like, and if I'm right, then what we're going to see is a bunch of indicators flood the zone, right? And the very first thing, of course, we saw were the spontaneous protests, right? And, uh, you know, it just, it was just such a... a energizing feature for us. And, we, and, and I'm sure you guys have, have talked quite a bit about the enthusiasm gap. And, you know, that was a big issue in Virginia. And that's why I said, I, I'm convinced that we could run the exact same everything in Virginia and elect Terry McAuliffe if we wouldn't have had a 10 point enthusiasm gap, you know, hanging over us. I think that the conversion pool and the enthusiasm pool as people are moving their strategy to do both with one message to both drive voters to the polls and get them to vote not for the other side is a totally different persuasion, right? As people are starting to pick that that up, we're really starting to see this efficacy of, you know, winning the brand war amongst independents. So what did you guys find in your post-op, um, you know, just because we have to we have to be tight on time, listeners, I'm so sorry about that. Um, what did you guys find in your post-op in terms of that? What did you see in terms of the data? Well, I, I'm happy to, to, to jump in. Look, first, it's early, right? Like the caution we have to have is it's still early. We need to have the voter files, the vote history to know who actually voted to really be confident about this. We have five or six states at this point. It's beginning to point us in a direction. I really dislike the false dichotomy that is presented in a lot of these arguments where people will say it was all persuasion. It was all mobilization. To your point, it's both, right? It's always both. It's some mix of both. It's clear that, you know, when we were looking at Dobbs and what we were theorizing even before the election was, again, three potential impacts. One, mobilization. That was what's obvious. As you said, it was engaging people immediately who weren't engaged, especially younger people, especially younger women who were not especially engaged. Republicans were underperforming, but younger voters didn't look like they were going to come out. That changed that. Two was independent swinging them over. It is clear that happened. You see that Democrats won with independence. Again, it's not just about Dobbs. It's really Dobbs crystallizes this notion of Republican extremism and makes it viable and real. Uh, and it did. And then three really is a subheader to that. 
it drew in these other arguments of Republican extremism in terms of democracy, election deniers. And look, they presented us, it wouldn't have worked, or it certainly wouldn't have worked as well if they hadn't nominated extremist, unqualified candidates to be the poster children of this around the country. And so the analysis in terms of the data we're looking at at this point is consistent with that. Democratic turnout was actually really good. The youth vote appears to have been really high, not as high as 2018, which shattered all records for a midterm, but probably second to 2018. Democratic turnout was good. Are there areas where uh, we have to do better? Absolutely. You know, Simon has been looking a lot at sort of the lack of nationalization in this election and sort of the dynamic and dichotomy. I'll let him dig into that. I think that's an important takeaway, too. Yeah, the two quick things. One is that I, I don't think this was a nationalized election. I think there were really two elections, which also, Rachel, is like really unusual, right? In our, you know, in this in this kind of analysis. Yeah, yeah I have to admit, I'm there, intrigued to hear what you're going to say here. Yeah, so so there were two. I think there were two elections. I think there was one election, a bluer election inside the battlegrounds, and a redder election outside the battlegrounds. And 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 so in the bluer in the bluer in the battlegrounds where we had very robust campaigns and lots of money. We were able to control the information environment much more. Um, we, you know, we saw through the early vote that this two weeks of GOTV is better than one day, right? I mean, we were able to move, you know, we have a huge tactical advantage now in our, in our robust field operations. You're seeing the Republicans just squawk about this like crazy. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's the DNC's initiative, right? I mean, to put, yeah, it was the DNC's, the DNC's work is so invisible, (laughs) you know, that, that, uh, people don't see, they didn't see what it was doing until election day. And, and, and you're touching on that. Go on. Yeah, and we saw it. We saw it in the early vote. We saw the early vote getting younger and more democratic as the campaigns kicked in in the final, you know, week to ten days. One of the most interesting exit polls data was that in the voters who voted in before the final month, Republicans won those voters fifty two forty seven, and the voters who voted in the final month, we won those voters fifty one forty six. Right, which I think is another sign of what happened. When our campaigns kicked in and because of this robust field operation, we were able to get to lower propensity voters much earlier in the process than we normally do. And I think it had a really big impact. It's why we won in places like Pennsylvania by five points and not two points. Right. It's because we were able to you know, push the envelope of the potential voter pool right through this advanced field operations that were built. So I think to me, the most important thing is that we show the Republicans that we're in control of our own destiny in the battleground. Uh, this, the, the fact that we overperformed 2020, right? Not match 2020, but overperformed 2020 in Arizona, Colorado, New Hampshire, uh, you know, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia. Uh, it's incredible. It's an, it's an, it's the more that you look, I, I talked to, to Ron Brownstein about this yesterday. The more that you look at the data, the more unbelievable it actually is. I right? cannot wait to see even, the final data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, so we had for 2024, the good news here is that in the states that we really need to win again, you know, we are stronger now than we were. We're stronger as a national party than we were before because of our, you know, now embracing the early vote in a way that Democrats had never done before. This is a significant tactical, um, you know, uh, 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 
innovation, right, uh, for Democrats that really matters for a party that has more low propensity voters or more infrequent voters, right? These are really important things. And so I've come out of this election feeling that the Democratic Party is, is as strong as it's ever been in all the years that I've been doing this, both in terms of future leadership, in terms of message and narrative. And, and, and I'll end with one last thing is that I do think this was a stay the course election. I think very few incumbents lost. Again, Rachel, a shocking thing. Right. And for anyone who studies this stuff. And it's because Joe Biden's been a good president and the country is actually better than it was two years ago. And how even if people aren't saying that necessarily, it sure showed up in the way they voted. And and I one of my favorite my final point on the exits, one of my favorite questions was, you know, are you better off today? Fifty two percent said they're either the same or better. We won those voters by three to one. And, and that's a sign that people were like, hey, look, they're a little too crazy and we've, and Democrats have done a decent job. We're going to be okay with them staying in power. And the thing is, that basic dynamic is going to also be playing out in 2024. Right? No, absolutely. I mean, 2022 is always about what, where, where will the game start for 2024? And it's not, I guess I shouldn't even say game because, you know, <laughs> control of the executive government at, at, at this stage is, is, is more than a game. It is, critical to maintaining a pluralistic democracy. So, um, yeah, we're going to be starting in a great spot. I agree with you 100%, Simon. The party has never looked in better shape. And uh, we, we learned a couple of things, too, that we didn't mention here. You know, I think going into the cycle, you know, hey, we, we need to start telling these people these guys are extremists and they're radical. And, you know, the, the data was like, well, very clear, you know, voters assign those adjectives not to, not to Republicans. They assigned it to us, okay, because... For 10 years, there was a machine telling them the Democrats are crazy radicals and there was no reciprocated message. So I'm very excited that you know we saw the success of, of branding the Republican Party as an existential threat um, really, really demonstrates uh, the potential for other projects, which I know you're working on and we'll talk about some other time. Um, but yeah, I'm so excited you guys could come in. Tom and uh, Simon are busy flying around the country, you know, attending to all the loose ends. <laughs> so squeezing in a half an hour to come on and, and do talk in midterms with me was, was a reach. And I'm so grateful that you guys were able to find, you know, a few minutes to come and do that. Um, yeah, is have any projects you want to put people on the radar for right now? I just flagged, you know, Simon mentioned our target early site. Um, I have to give our team the credit for building that. We will be continuing to put that out when the vote history comes in. It's going to pivot so you can actually look and see who voted, not just the early vote, but everybody. So we're collecting the vote history. Like I said, we got five or six states now. We'll have all 50 states by, you know, first quarter of next year. So targetearly.com, check it out. It'll have some good, good nerdy data. Oh, that's going to yeah. be like a nerd celebration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and listen, Tom, Tom and his team deserve unbelievable amount of credit for, because we just didn't have the ability to do the kind of analysis. I mean, there was so much skepticism about the early vote, in part because we never had the tools to make this kind of intelligent, you know, year-to-year, day-to-day demographic analysis because of, in part, but also because Tom does model partisanship. It meant that we could extend it into states that didn't have partisan registration, which just made this far more effective. I'll just say two things. Tom and I are actually speaking... Uh, tomorrow at the DNC state chairs meeting, uh, it will be 
our first in-person event together as the, you know, the running buddies that we've been over the last uh, few months. It's kind of exciting. I'm Tom and Tom and I are just going to wing it. We're not going to have slides. We're just going to, we actually should talk about that because I think they want us to do slides, but I think I'm, 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 I'd rather not do slides and just sort of talk it out. Um, cause I think it'll be fun for people. The story of taking on the red wave for all of us in, the game is sort of a fun story, right? I mean, we all want to take take on evil big media and right-wing memes and actually defeat them, and we, we did. And so, but the second thing is I have a presentation that I do called With Democrats, Things Get Better. It's on my website. I just want to encourage everybody. It's something I've been doing for a few years. It's a, it's a very big picture swing on the virtues of the Democratic Party and how when we're in power, things get better, and when they're in power, things don't. And it's it tries to establish this fundamental contrast, Rachel, that I think you'll appreciate, which is that when we're, you know, that our party, that we don't have a symmetrical system. It's not a left and right, equal virtuous and equal uh, full of vice. It's that there's been one really good party that continues to make things better for America and another party that doesn't. And we have to do a better job at establishing that fundamental contrast uh, between and, and to reject the, the symmetry, the false symmetry that is put on our politics so often. So this is about a 30 minute presentation where I go through uh, lots of data about uh, how things have gone since 1989 and the and the communism fell. And I'll just give you one sort of little tidbit, which is that there have been 46 million net new jobs created in America since 1989. 44 million of them have been created under Democratic presidents, 96%. So it's almost all the jobs have been created when we've been in power. Republicans have basically contributed nothing to the national, you know, uh, to the economic life of the nation. We shouldn't be losing the economic argument to these guys. I know this is something you care about a lot. It is. And I try it to is. provide I try I try to provide data to help make our arguments more muscular and robust. And that presentation you said is, is already live, right? So I'm gonna link yeah. that and I'm gonna target the target early, you know, the pre election version, target early up when I release this blog post. But yeah, Simon, that is that's the that's what I started Strike Pack two years ago. The very first ad I made was on the economy and I know. <laughs> it's how we connect it's how we connected. I mean you and I were saying same things in parallel universes. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I agree I agreed hundred percent with your insight. I think like, you know, we'll talk about it, but I think in ten years when we poll, if 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 we can do what we want to do, right? In ten years when we poll people and we ask them which party's better on the economy, they're gonna say Democrats. That's the goal. Can we do that? Can we do it in the next two years? Well, we're going to start. Like it to takes it. 10 years, I think, to move it. <laughs> but you've got to start, right? So, like, you know, I think we're, the opening salvo, guys, is is a is a is time to prosecute the case on Reaganomics and what it did to the American middle class. And, and it's really going to be, I think, a, a really strong asset for us as we look at these broad coalitions. And, and we're looking at, at sub, southern sub, suburbs with 25-point margins out of that runoff. I mean, it's just incredible. And and what it means and says to me is that there's so much brand loyalty to go break out there on GOP because there's so many millions of Americans who honest, and I talk about this in my book that drops this next year in 23, how to hit them where it hurts, how to save democracy by beating Republicans at their own game. And, um, you know, it talks a little bit about how, you know, ultimately the Republican Party's economic records is a shit show. And we can make that very clear to people. Yeah, look, I, I, in the Brownstein piece in the Atlantic that he dropped today, one of the things I speculate, which is as we head into 2024, is for the last two years I've been saying, hey, people voted against MAGA twice and, you know, they're not going to want to do it again. So even if they're disappointed in Biden, they may not jump back into the Republican arms. Now people have voted against MAGA three times. 
and in the battleground states. And so the muscle memory, the the brand, to your point, the Republicans have, have told voters who they are in three consecutive elections. It's going to be very difficult for them to walk away from that and shake that in 2024. I think they've got these two huge millstones around their neck, right? They've got the extremism of MAGA. Their party actually has been taken over by extremists, right, and extremism. And they've got abortion. And those two things are going to make it very difficult for whoever their nominee is um, to sort of try to position themselves as being not one of those crazy Republicans. And so I'm very optimistic about it. I think these election results were very encouraging for us and are very dispiriting for them. And you can tell how dispiriting it is for them because they're talking, they're angry and frustrated and pissed off in the national media every day. It's actually kind of a stunning thing. I mean, they've kind of broken character a little bit, um, you know, in the last few days about how devastating these election results have been for them. Yeah, I think it's a really positive sign for democracy. And, and uh, you know, I mean, it was the only it was the only thing that was ever going to wake them up is an electoral ass whopping. Right. I mean, that was what it had to come that way. There's no other way aside from a really strong you know, coordinated internal push or McConnell or whatever. And that was never going to happen, obviously, after Jan 6. So go America, go team reform. Tom, Simon, you guys are awesome to come on to the cycle and share your thoughts about the midterms. I hope to have you guys back as we gear up into 2024. Whenever you need us, 